Good morning. As you can tell from the bald head and the professorial glasses and the graying beard, I am Clay Dabbs. <laughs> but since they may be recording this, uh, let me add the truth. I'm Errol Castens, and I'm stand, standing in for Clay Dabbs as we continue a, ser a series on the parables. Before we get into today's discussion, let's pray. Father, there's nothing more valuable that we could be doing for the next 30 to 40 minutes or for all, or for all eternity than to know you more and gladly make you known. But for that to happen, you've got to make it happen. This guy standing up here cannot make it happen. I beg that you would in Jesus' name. Jesus spoke in a great many parables, some like the parable of the hidden treasure. Oh, and, and if I at some point fade down on the sound, please wave at me and tell me to uh, up my voice. All right. Thank you, Mr. Sam. Some like the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price are just a couple of sentences long. Others, particularly the parable of the Good Samaritan and that of the prodigal son, are quite involved. All have deep meaning, of course. In a real sense, I mean, why do we care about the parables? They're, in, in one sense, they're just stories. But in a real sense, every parable that Jesus gave us contains the gospel in miniature. Every one of them can be the start of a, of a gospel conversation. We're going to start with the parable of the lost coin. Then we're going to move back to the parable of the lost sheep. And then we'll finish up with the parable of the prodigal son. The lost coin, Luke 15, starting in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost, lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels, the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. The parable of the lost sheep is found in two places, Matthew 18 and Luke 15. Start with Matthew. In verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones perish. Now, Jesus had just been talking to the disciples about little children and how they, someone like them, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
The Luke 15 version of this same parable. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. We're going to take just a, the 30,000-foot view of the, of the coin parable, partly because, mainly because it shares some of the points in the parable of lost sheep. So let's think for a minute about the point of view of both the shepherd who's found his lost sheep and the woman who's found her lost coin. Jesus showed in both of these parables that there simply must be celebration over that which was lost and now is found. So let me ask you, why is there more joy in heaven over a repentant sinner than over 99 people who need no repentance? Let's think about it. But we all have been there. We all have been lost and found. We all have lost things and found them. It's fun to go to a, a football game where Ole Miss wins against a, a largely unknown um, opponent by 49 to nothing. That's kind of fun in its own way. But those are not the games that you'll talk about forever. The ones you'll talk about that, that somebody will be talking about at your wake are the ones where some 19-year-old kid pulls four touchdowns out of a hat in the last six minutes to beat Alabama. Where, where there's drama, where there's, where there's uncertainty, where there was the apparent lostness, and then it was pulled into victory. Now, I'll admit this, that this question, why more joy in heaven over repentant sinner, one repentant sinner, it's partly a trick question, too. Okay, we all know there's not a human on this earth who doesn't need repentance. There are no 99 righteous. We all need repentance, either the initial repentance that comes with regeneration, or as Christians, we are to live lives of continual repentance. But there's also an answer to, to this question that doesn't have any trick parts. C.S. Lewis famously said, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses 
but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not, not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's not just that God treasures and exults over his lost and found sheep. Now, now we're going back to my words. I, I forgot to close the quote on C.S. Lewis. It's not that God treasures and exults over his lost sheep solely, though certainly the cross and all the redemption story that goes with it does prove that. It's also that God treasures his glory, his reputation, his magnificence, and every claiming of a lost sinner adds something to the enjoyment, his enjoyment and ours, of that glory. In the Matthew version of the lost sheep, Jesus had told his disciples in answer to their question that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is he who humbles himself like this little child. He goes on to say, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. In the Luke version, Jesus is answering the scribes and Pharisees as to why he ate with folks whom they could only see as sinners. So many elements for us to ponder in these two simple passages. A man owns a bunch of sheep and he's out in the field with them to protect them against predators. Sorry. And to guide them to pasture and water. Why else might he be out there with the sheep? That would be predators. Keeping them supplied with green pastures, still waters. You know, sheep will not move, will, will not drink out of a, a fast moving stream. They're scared of it. Sheep are scared of a great many things for good reason. They're defenseless. He may be out there also because he just happens to love sheep. So one sheep wanders off. And if we study Sheep Tending 101, we learn that sheep like to stay with their flock. That usually when one wanders off, it's because it was so focused on grazing that it didn't even notice that it was separated from the others until it was out of sight. Once a sheep realizes it's alone, it gets panicky. But sheep are social. They need each other. And because they're utterly defenseless against predators. My family had a few sheep when I was a young man, and though we tried to keep predator-proof fences, it was an ongoing challenge. Predators are persistent creatures. Packs of dogs would occasionally terrorize the flock, literally tearing chunks out of their flesh and leaving them standing, more for the fun of it than for any aim to eat them. What kind of parallels can we see to that predator behavior in this world? Let me throw that question out to y'all. Where do we see parallels like that? The devil. The devil. 
drive-by shootings, human trafficking. We, we could stand here the rest of, not just this Sunday school, but the rest of, till, till we all dropped, telling ways that predators inflict, in, infect this world. In the Matthew 18 version of this parable, Jesus makes plain something that we already know, even if we never put it in words. Like we said about the, the ball game. Having lost something valuable and found it again is far more gratifying than to have kept it safe and sound all along. Think about a few contemporary parables of that. The football example again. 49 to nothing versus a last second fingertip catch in the end zone to, to turn the game around. Or what? Losing your ticket before the ball game. Ah, finding it right before the game starts. That would be awesome. Uh, think about it, this one in pop culture. In every romantic comedy, everyone that you've ever seen, someone loses somebody else before they get them back. And without that, there's no story. If you've ever been to San Antonio, you've seen the Tower of the Americas. Uh, you can see it from 40 miles away if you're driving into the city. It was built as an eye-catching anchor for the 1968 World's Fair. I was 10 years old, and we got to go. The first couple of days, we, we did mostly grown-up fun. We went to lots of pavilions where we saw lots of exhibitions by lots of countries and corporations and even churches. Some interesting things, to be sure, but none that compared in a 10-year-old's mind with the midway in its rides. The third day we were there, my brother and our first cousin, both of them ten, two years older than I, finally talked Mom and Daddy and Aunt Mavis and Uncle Bryce into letting us go to the rides for a while. The adults told the older boys that we could, just, we could play for just so long and then we were to meet them back at a certain time at a certain place. After we'd experienced the roller coaster and the tilt-a-whirl and a whole slew of other mechanical gyrators that made you wish you hadn't had that last hot dog, but you still wanted to ride it over and over, the older boys suddenly realized we were late for our rendezvous with the grown-ups. My brother and cousin yelled, we gotta go, and took off running without looking back. And pretty soon they were out of sight of this short, fat kid who couldn't keep up and who hadn't even thought to ask where we were supposed to meet. I was a country kid. Our nearest neighbors at home were a quarter mile in one direction and six miles in the other. So it never occurred to me to contact police or security personnel. It also didn't occur to me to sit tight and let myself be found. I just asked myself, what exhibits have my parents not seen that they would want to see. So I started 
picking out those pavilions, ones they'd mentioned. But 92 acres of World's Fair makes it hard to look for your family. So plan B meant getting on the monorail that went from end to end so I could look down on the crowds and try to spot my folks. I had exactly 51 cents in my pocket and it cost a half a dollar to, to ride the monorail, so problem solved. Except that everything out there in, in these 92 acres looked like finding Waldo. I got off of the monorail, started trudging back to the other end of the fairgrounds, looking into every face and every door along the way. As weird, as crazy as it sounds now, the thought never entered my mind that my parents would be looking for me. Though they, they were not faultless people, we were a close, nurturing family. I had no doubt that they loved me. But somehow, at 10 years old, being lost seemed to be my problem alone. And I alone had to solve it. That was the longest 13 and a half hours of my life. In reality, it was about 30 minutes <laughs> from the time that I last saw my brother and cousin until I was sitting on a bench for a minute, just relaxing for, for, for a second, trying to figure out what plan C was going to be, when I saw my dad barreling through the crowd. He saw me long before I saw him. He came tearing toward me and grabbed me up and hugged me like he was never going to let me go. I have never, I, I, ne I never felt terror during that ordeal. I was blissfully unaware of the dangers that a big city could pose to a child. But the loneliness and the foreboding of not belonging to anyone, to any place or anything there was overwhelming. And the sense of relief in being found and claimed was just as overwhelming. I wouldn't wish the experience of being lost or having a lost child at the World's Fair on anyone. But being found is, worth, is more than worth the pain of having been lost. That memory that's 55 years old is one of my most treasured memories one of my most sustaining memories. The pain of being lost and then being, and, and the, the relief, the joy in being found is worth both ends of the equation, whether you're a woolly sheep or a human one. We'll probably find some more answers to this question. Why is it better to have suffered and been rescued than to have been comfortable, all, comfortable and safe all along? Again, the pain is worth it. The, the relief. We'll probably find some more answers to that in the parable of the prodigal son, which is found in Luke 15. This is one of Jesus' longer parables, and only Luke tells it. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, 
give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off in a, for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of man, son of mine, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What are some of the elements we see in this story? Some of the elements that we see that are parallel even to situations we might see today. Anybody have, ever have a freshman at Ole Miss and wonder what they were doing when they, weren't in, when they were supposed to be in class? The younger son wants to see the world. He wants to experience the high life, get away from the watchful eyes of dad and everyone else who knew him and might hold him accountable. He asks for his inheritance early. He leaves home for a far country. Spins wildly, ends up bankrupt, loses every friend. Famine comes, ends up, uh, famine comes, he ends up starving. Takes the lowest job imaginable. Jesus said he came to his senses. 
and decided to go home. Not as a, ser- a son, but as a hired servant. The father saw him, ran to him, refused to hear the son's groveling, but embraced him. Had shoes and a robe and a ring brought to him, restored him as a son, and then planned a party. As in the other two parables, he could not, not celebrate the once lost, now found soul. The older brother resents the younger one's return and any hint that it should be celebrated. The father appeals to the, to the resentful older brother. And Jesus leaves us hanging at the end of the parable. We can make up endings that we'd like to see, but he did not wrap it up neatly. So if you've heard this preached on before or done any background reading, some of what we talk about will be a refresher. But we may learn something new. In first century Judea, to ask for your inheritance early was tantamount to to telling your father, I wish you were dead. This father was unusually gracious, though. Not just in the fact that he didn't physically attack and banish the son for the asking, but in that he actually sold the young son, younger man's son, younger man's share of the land, and gave him the proceeds. Hebrew identity was inextricably tied to the promised land and to the temple in Jerusalem. Therefore, for the younger son to move to a far country meant he was giving up his family ties and his ethnic, national, and religious identity. Just like many an Ole Miss freshman, the prodigal tried to buy friends with wild living until his money ran out. Just as the far country went into a famine. Abandoned by his buddies, he got the most humiliating job imaginable for a Jewish boy. And he still couldn't buy enough food to keep his belly button and his backbone from scraping together. So what might be our contemporary equivalent of the prodigal's wild living and eventual decline and his eventual desperation? Any ideas? Flunking out. Any adult level variations of this? Maybe. Yes, no? Maybe saying. An alcoholic nephew that spends everything he has, then comes home. The prodigal came to his senses, Jesus said. When God gives us the gift of seeing our depravity in all its richness, that's an immensely painful gift, but one that is infinitely valuable. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Reformed Baptist preacher of 19th century London, said it this way, When the light of God's grace comes into your heart, it's something like the opening of the windows of an old cellar. Down in that cellar, which has not been opened for many months, are all kinds of loathsome creatures and a few sickly plants blanched by the darkness. The walls are dark and damp with a trail of reptiles. It's a horrid, filthy place, 
in which no one would willingly enter. You may walk there in the dark, feeling very secure, and except now and then for the touch of some slimy creature, you would not believe the place was so bad and filthy. But open the shutters, clean the horizon, and I'm missing a page. Open the shutters, clean the horizon, and the horror that you see will undo you. What did the father do while the son was away in the far country? He watched. Many of us in this room may not presently see ourselves in the, in the role of the, the prodigal son. We may have done that in the past. Some of us may. Some of us very well may be the prodigal. Having run away from God in ways that may not seem uh, conventional. Just going through the motions. Taking on the, the, the role of church-going person, but doing it in a hollow way. But if we find ourselves in, many of us may find ourselves in the role of the father in this story. We can be assured he watched, probably several times a day. As he kept his life going, as he kept living, he kept making a living, he kept up the relationship with his younger son, I mean his older son, even though it proved not to be what he hoped it would be. Because they came, because he was throwing a party, we can assume that he had kept up relationships with neighbors, kept up friendships. He kept living. Even though there was that undercurrent of sorrow, he watched probably several times a day. He would scan that horizon way down the road, hoping today would be the day that that son came home. While he watched the father in the parable prayed, let me use an unusual term for Sunday school, but I'm gonna use it in its, pre, its proper theological context. If we have a prodigal, it's our job to pray the hell out of them. In, in, in very literal sense. We ask God to bring about every ounce of pain that it'll take to get our child to come, home, come to his senses. Let the friends desert them. Let them be utterly alone. Bring on any humiliation, Lord, that will morph into true humility. Bring on the famine so all the self-sufficiency melts away. When you think about it, that's a pretty good prayer for our own sanctification as well. But we also beg that God will measure the pain carefully, not using one ounce more than is required to bring about the prodigal's repentance or ours. We pray that our prodigal will remember the love they felt under our roof and know that a repentant sinner is not just accepted but welcomed and celebrated. When 
the father saw the prodigal coming down the road, saw him while he was a long way off, ran toward him, dispensing with all dignity that was expected of him in his age, in that time, in that place, threw himself on the son, welcomed him, kissed him, embraced him, complete with pig stink and all. What do you think that moment must have been like for both of them? What do you, somebody tell me, what do you imagine the prodigal was thinking and feeling when he, ha, when he first had his father's arms wrapped around him? Great relief at the acceptance. Great relief for the father that the son has come back. Maybe some, is this really happening? Can it be this good? Can this be true? Now let's move for a few minutes to the other major parable, I mean, other major character in this parable, the older brother. One of the insights from Tim Keller's Prodigal Son video series, and I encourage you all to find it on YouTube and, and watch the whole thing. One of the insights from that that I find most impactful is this. The older brother in that culture would have, been, would have been expected to go after his younger brother and bring him home. That didn't happen. That's convicting because of how many unbelievers I know and with how few of them by proportion that I've shared the gospel with. But it's also greatly encouraging because it points to Christ, the true older brother, who gave his life for all of us prodigals. Let's think about another aspect of the mentality of the older brother in this parable. Sometimes it's just plain hard to celebrate repentance when it seems like God gave it to the wrong person. There's a man who's been in Mississippi Department of Corrections custody for three plus decades. He's serving a slew of sentences because of a notorious series of crimes that got national headlines. My wife, Sue, when this man's crimes were fresh and his story was being told daily, often thought of his victims and said, I hope they put him under the jail. And most of us around, who were around then felt equally strongly. Just for convenience, let's call this guy Michael, though that, that is not his name. Michael killed and maimed because he was mad at the world. And to make us despise him even more, he was a self-described devil worshiper. But on his first night in jail, he began to realize how alone he was. As I was told the story, he was stripped of every shred of his clothes, perhaps to be kept as evidence, and because he was on a suicide watch that first night. He was put into a cell without a mattress, a sheet, a pillow, or so much as a Kleenex to cover himself. 
I don't know how much Michael thought about his victims or his guilt or his eternal destiny that night, but the steel bunk was too much like a morgue slab for him to sleep much, despite his ongoing celebration of the devil in the years ahead and in the years behind. That night, he actually spoke to his heavenly, the Heavenly Father for the first time in years. I don't know if you're there, God, he said, or something like that. But if you're there, I could use some clothes. About that time, a woman drove into the jail parking lot and entered the front door with some Walmart bags. She told the person at the desk, I don't know who or why, but God told me to go buy these clothes and bring them here. She had bought clothes in Michael's extra, extra, extra large sizes, the styles he liked, and even his usual brands. This man is obviously impressed by having had his prayer for clothes answered in detail, but he doesn't give in right away. He keeps paying homage to the devil. He gets sentenced to prison, becomes one of the bad boys, perhaps as a bluff to keep others from taking advantage of him. Despite his ongoing rebellion, God kept wooing him. And finally, at a Cairo's prison ministry weekend, a couple of years into his imprisonment, Michael was broken by seeing his own depravity, and he put his full faith in Christ. He had spent his whole life turning his back on the Heavenly Father that he wasn't even sure existed. And now he was joyfully welcomed by that Father. In the years since then, Michael has earned a seminary degree. He shared the gospel with thousands there at Parchman and in other prisons. Anyone, anyone who's had the privilege of having him pray for them has coming, come away feeling like they'd never been prayed for before. Y'all remember Corey Tinboom? She was a Christian who spent much of World War II in concentration camps after she and her family had helped protect Jews from the Nazis. She spent the rest of her life speaking and writing of God's goodness in that whole, whole ordeal. Once, Corey had just finished a talk to a large audience when a man stuck out his hand for her to shake, and she recognized him as a guard who had delighted in humiliating her and other female prisoners. He claimed now to be a Christian, and he had to decide, she had to decide in a second if she could forgive him. And by hard effort and firm decision, she grasped his hand and the warmth of Christian brotherhood flowed through their arms to each other. That was my wife Sue's experience with Michael. At the closing of her first Kairos weekend, someone introduced her to this infamous man. She had to decide in instantly if she could accept this killer, somebody she had wished to see dead and buried under the jail as a brother in Christ. He is a very dear brother in Christ to this day. Back to the parable and the older brother. Many an older brother of the type we see in this parable has heard of Michael's com coming home to his heavenly father, but refuses to celebrate his repentance. Some say it's just jailhouse religion. Some say he doesn't deserve forgiveness. But what can any of us do to deserve grace? 
If we resent God's grace to anyone, whether it's a hostile nation or a notorious criminal or someone we know personally, or just a character that Jesus created for a parable, we may need a remedial course in the book of Jonah or the letters of Paul. If we disagree with God's prodigal mercy, what are we believing about our own depravity? In every part of history, let, let, me, let me give the, the classic atheist objection or agnostic objection to the, the gospel, to the existence of God even. If there is a God, a God he can't be all-powerful all-knowing and all-loving, or there wouldn't be suffering. But remember our analogy about the blowout football game versus the victory snatched from the jaws of defeat? The joy of being found when I was lost at the world's fair? Remember in the Bible the joy that Joseph had in reuniting with his brothers and their families after they had sold him into slavery? Peter's joy when having denied the Lord three times, Jesus told him three times, feed my sheep. We all learned in kindergarten that no story ever starts with, and they all lived happily ever after. In high school English class, we were taught that every story involves conflict. Every parable that Jesus told has a problem in it. The Bible is full of stories where God uses awful circumstances to produce eternal benefits. In fact, the whole Bible is a true story, a true truth, as Francis Schaeffer calls it, in which the arc of history goes from creation to the fall to redemption to consummation. God is using the universe and all the conflict, all the suffering that we see in this present age He's using that as pages to write the ultimate story. And in our suffering and in our joy, we get to be characters in that grand narrative of history. That's why it's not a lament, but a celebration when we sing, I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. Let's pray again. Father, use our pains, our losses, and our lostness for eternal good, as you have promised you will. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.